Welcome to the Emergence Sessions podcast. Sessions is a ministry of Emergence Church that exists to equip us to walk as disciples of Jesus by growing in knowledge and in our ability to live wisely in His world. Father, we once again thank you for the opportunity to come here and to learn about what you have done in history. And uh, I pray that um, you would help my brothers and sisters today to, uh, to absor- absorb uh, what they need to, um, to better appreciate you, to have a better sense of uh, your reality in this world. Um, and I just ask, Father, that you'd help me to communicate clearly. And uh, the things that are helpful, pray that they would, uh, that they would stick. Uh, I want to pray also for the moms group over in 300 right now, that all the ladies who are there, uh, that that would be a tremendous blessing to them as well, uh, be with their leaders and those who are speaking tonight. Uh, so thank you for this time and uh, giving us reason to gather. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, we are going to be looking at um, essentially what happens in the 700s BC. So this is, uh, you know, uh, the eighth century, as they would, as they would call it. We would call it. Um, I was initially planning on going to the fall of both the northern and the southern kingdoms tonight, but uh, once I like, you know, started making the notes up and everything, I was like, that's a little bit ambitious. Um, so uh, we're probably. I'm not sure how far we're going to end up getting by the end of next week. So we'll see. We'll play it by ear. Um, I want to start off tonight with a quote uh, by a scholar named uh, Baruch Halpern, who uh, is commenting on kind of what I've been saying a few times in the last few weeks, that uh, like the further you get into Israel's history, you really start getting a torrent of evidence and archaeological inscriptions and material finds and things. And uh, what he writes about this is, uh, there is not much doubt that the archaeological record of the 8th through 6th centuries comports in almost every particular with the general political picture that we derive from epigraphs and the biblical record critically regarded. And, uh, you know, by critically regarded, I take it that he means, um, you know, with our thinking caps on. Remember, we've talked a little bit about, like, how um, this takes a little bit of skill in interpreting both what the archaeology and the um, inscriptions are saying, um, as well as, you, you know, having an accurate idea of what the Bible is saying. So, I find statements to this effect pretty encouraging. Now, speaking of the time period that we're going to talk about tonight... Um, in the Bible, we, uh, you can leave that slide up there, Helene will be there in a second. Um, we're thinking of in the north, basically from King Joash, sometimes called Jehoash, um, uh, down through the, basically the end of the northern kingdom. Uh, the, the name Joash is one of these other fun names where you have king, a king in the north and in the south who have the same name. Um, and, um. And then, in the, and then in the south, in the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, we're going to be looking at about the reigns of uh, Ahaz, um, although we'll start a little earlier than him, but we'll really start talking, when we really get into the details, we'll be talking about King Ahaz, 
who is not a, not a very good king, and then King Hezekiah, who is a, a very good king. Okay, so um, meanwhile in Assyria, <laughs> and I mean that because, you know, we've been talking a lot about what's been going on in the early first millennium, so that's 1000 BC and then what comes after that, uh, what's been going on in particularly Israel. No surprise that that's what we're interested in. Um, but uh, during this whole time, obviously, things have been going on throughout the world, and including the um, emergence, to coin a phrase, of, the, of what's known as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So this begins with the king Adad-Narari II and goes all the way down until the eventual fall of the Neo-Assyrian Empire with the final king Ashur-Ubalit II, who is um, quite small in stature compared to many of his predecessors. So let's talk a little bit about, um, about how, how Assyria became so dominant, as dominant as we'll see it is today. So Assyria is one of those states that survives that upheaval at the end of the Bronze Age. Remember at around 1200 or so, the uh, most of the, basically the, the political realities, uh, especially along the Mediterranean coast, are upended and uh, all kinds of kingdoms are shifting hands and going uh, defunct. And Assyria, however, is considerably inland. And so it is affected by this, but it doesn't go away like some of these other kingdoms did. And if you look at, uh, let's go to the next slide there. Um, if you look at the, uh, the map of Assyria, oh wait, I, think I, I don't think I grabbed the nice pointer, that's okay. Um, we'll suffer for this evening. Um, look, that little dinky, pathetic thing. All right, here comes Drew. Drew delivered me, as Drew delivered me wings earlier tonight, so he will deliver me the quality pointer. Thank you. Courtesy of Elaine. All right, so as you can see, this is basically the territory that we're talking about. This is like the height of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and this is just massive. Like, this is scale, the scale is is 500 miles, this thing down here, like, you just imagine, like, like, that these guys are controlling this amount of territory. But if you look, that's surrounded by mountains, the Taurus Mountains in the north, and then the Zagros Mountains on the east, all right? So while all these states are kind of, like, figuring out what they're going to be, whom they're going to be, the, um, these guys are constantly fighting off threats coming from the mountains, mountain tribes, and they're constantly fighting them. And as they do, while, again, everybody here is getting their act together, the Assyrian military grows into a brutal and efficient war machine such as had never been seen in history up to this point. And so once the threat from the mountains are, is, is a bit subdued, the Assyrian kings get this idea. Why don't we use, put this military to good use and start expanding? And so they start to grow their wealth by forcing other lands to pay tribute to them or to be destroyed. And they begin 
stabbing westward and eastward, or southeastward. During the reign of this guy, Adad-Nirari II, Assyria begins expanding towards the west. And that's, you know, what obviously will eventually bring them into the purview of um, Israel and Damascus and Phoenicia and all of that. Uh, this, by the way, is when the Limu list canon starts. Remember, we talked about how each year is named by a different official. Um, and initially, however, the campaigns... So here you see, like, these are the, the main uh, cities of... Uh, central cities of Assyria. Initially, they just start going down the Tigris and then just make a loop back into the Assyrian heartland there. Um, and uh, typically, they do this during the summer because there's fewer agricultural demands, and so the men are freed up to participate in the military. Uh, a standing army is not created until they do this all without a standing army up through the mid-8th century. Um, and also, the mountain passes are open in the summer, and the rivers are more easily crossed. So they start doing that, and throughout the empire's existence, while they're doing all of this, they are conscripting the people whom they're conquering for all types of military service. And this results in an army that is large and diverse, where different contingents often spoke different languages. And um, the, then they take, would take the conquered people, and they would use them to build, populate, and serve as craftsmen in the Assyrian cities. So they don't just conquer and leave you there. But they take captives, and they, re, they repopulate different areas with them. So during the three centuries of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, an estimated 4.5 million people are deported. Um, this also helps keep deportees under control, right? Because you're unfamiliar with your new home, and um, you're therefore also dependent upon Assyrian strength for protection there for protection from hostile outsiders. And this, by the way, is one of the ways in which the script that we now know of as Hebrew, right, that's called the Aramaic square script. When, you think of, when we think of Hebrew letters, that's what we think of. You may have noticed the Hebrew inscriptions we've been looking at here are not written in that. So this is one of the ways in which that spreads. Now, by the time you get to Asher Nasser Paul II, who reigned from 883 to 859 BC, these campaigns are regular. And by the end of his reign, he had retaken essentially everything that the Middle Assyrian Empire had controlled, all the way to, it's not on this map, but it's called Tilbarsip, uh, is like right there in that crook of the Euphrates right there. Um, is, that is basically the westernmost output, out, the westernmost outpost of the Assyrian Empire by about the 860 BC. And um, uh, this is, that is a city that is later named Kar Shalmaneser after his son. Uh, Ashurnasser Paul II establishes his new ca uh, capital at, uh, at Kala, or sometimes it's written Kalhu. Uh, you'll also, it's also known as Nimrud. And uh, that city took 15 years to build. Uh, it is 890 acres, and it's surrounded by a wall that's eight kilometers long. 
It had a palace, several temples, as well as a ziggurat. You know what ziggurats are? They're like these step pyramids. Uh, and um, it's basically, the Tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat, by the way. Um, and Kala remains the capital there for, uh, of the Assyrian Empire for about 150 years. You're probably wondering, well, what about Nineveh? Because we all know about Jonah, right? Nineveh does not become the capital until 705 BC. Um, so that's under, um, right, right before the reign of Sargon II. Um, and um, so interestingly, when the prophet Jonah goes to Nineveh, Nineveh is a prominent city, but it's not the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the king of Nineveh would be more like the governor of the, or the mayor, not really mayor, but you know, the ruler of Nineveh, but not like the head of the Assyrian Empire. Um, the Assyrians practiced what has been called an ideology of terror. And it is now in full swing by Asher Nasser Paul II. So here is an inscription from the Ninurta Temple in Kala. Again, that's the capital that he makes. Um, so here are some selections from that. Just to give you their own, in their own words what these guys are doing. First of all, admire this man's humility. At that time, my sovereignty, my dominion, and my power came forth at the command of the great gods. I am king, I am lord, I am praiseworthy, I am exalted, I am important, I am a little insecure, <laughs> I am magnificent, I am foremost, I am a hero, I am a warrior, I am a lion, I am virile, Asher Nasserpal, strong king, king of Assyria, designate of the god Sen, favorite of the god Anu, loved one of the god Adad, who is almighty among the gods. I, the merciless weapon which lays low lands hostile to him. I, the king capable in battle, vanquisher of cities and highlands, foremost in battle, king of the four quarters, the one who defeats his enemies, the king who disintegrates all his enemies, king of the totality of the four quarters, including all their princes, the king who forces to bow down those insubmissive to him, the one who rules all peoples. These destinies came forth at the command of the great gods, and they properly fixed them as my destinies. And then he goes through lots of the stuff he does. And aside from what we would expect, the killing, the taking of slaves, the raising of cities, he eventually gets to this piece. I crossed over to Mount Kishiyari and approached the city Kinabu, the fortified city of Hulaya. Hulaya would be the ruler, not the name of the city. Kinabu is the city. With the mass of my troops and my fierce battle, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled with the sword 800 of their combat troops. I burnt 3,000 captives from them. I did not leave one of them alive as a hostage. I captured alive Hulaya, their ruler. I made a pile of their corpses. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I flayed Hulaya, their city ruler, and draped his skin over the wall of the city Damdamusa. I razed, destroyed, and burnt the city. Moving on from the city of Kinabu, I approached the city Tela. The city was well fortified. It was surrounded by three walls. 
The people put their trust in their strong walls and their large number of troops and did not come down to me. They did not submit to me. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I carried off prisoners, possessions, oxen, and cattle from them. I burnt many captives from them. I captured many troops alive, and some from some I cut off their arms and hands. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and extremities. You could guess what that's a euphemism for. I gouged out the eyes of, my, of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I raised, destroyed, burnt, and consumed the city. At that time, I raised, destroyed, and burnt the cities of the land Nerbu and their strong walls. So essentially what's going on here is that these Assyrian kings march into regions and they go to the most powerful and well-protected city in the region and essentially do this if they don't submit to them. And then they say to all the others who are around it, does anyone else not want to submit? And that's how the Assyrian Empire expands. Ashurnasirpal II dies in 859 BC, and he is succeeded by his son, Shalmaneser III, whom we've met a few times already. In his expeditions, he pushes further west across the Euphrates now, over here, and gains control over the coastal cities on the Mediterranean Sea. <clears throat> I'm not sure why it lists Ugarit. Ugarit doesn't exist anymore at this time, but otherwise I like the map very much. Um, <clears throat> uh, recall that there was the Battle in, of Karkar in 853. That's the one where we find Ahab. Um, but, you know, he's not really successful in subduing that land until about 841, which is when we saw King Yehu uh, paying tribute to Shalmaneser. <clears throat> now, at this point, when they conquer these cities, they're not yet annexed as part of the Assyrian state. That's a political development that will soon happen. And um, the last six years of Shalmaneser's reign, actually, um, he was considerably weakened from a revolt in Nineveh and other major Assyrian cities as well, which basically nullified a lot of his Western um, con conquests. <clears throat> After his death, his son, Shamshi Adad V, takes the throne and um, the Syrian states, realizing that the empire has been weakened, uh, refuse to pay tribute, and local Assyrian governors become almost totally independent, and he has to resort to bribing local officials with large estates in order to keep them loyal to him. So he's a weak, uh, comparatively weak king. Um, after his death, his queen, Samuramat, reigns with her son, Adad-Nirari III, and they begin to recover what um, what the empire that had been lost since the end of Shalmaneser's reign. And at this point, we see Israel listed as a willing tributary. So Israel starts getting pulled into their orbit, we know. Um, so in the Tel al-Ramah Stella of Adad-Nirari III, um, we read again uh, some of this uh, very modest talk here. Adad-Nirari, mighty king, king of the universe. He's like he-man. King of Assyria son of Shamshi Adad, the king of the universe, king of Assyria, son of Shalmaneser, 
the king of the four quarters. And you can see here he's talking about receiving tribute and mentioned is Joash the Sumerian, Eu Asu, as he's written in the inscription. Uh, Biblical chronology, by the way, places Joash's reign, Joash is a northern king, uh, this Joash at least, his reign is um, uh, 798 through 782, so this is right when Shamshi Adad is doing all of this stuff, so that links up pretty nicely. The kings of the first half of the 8th century, uh, uh, then, in other words, are less powerful, the the, the Neo-Assyrian kings, than their predecessors, and they lose a lot of their grip. Um, So during this time, um, Urartu begins to exert significant influence over Syria, uh, jeopardizing Assyria's access to the Mediterranean. And this essential standstill in the expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire allows both Israel and Judah to expand territorially and economically. And this is an interesting kind of indirect thing that we see with the Bible. Because if you're just reading the Bible, you think these guys are kind of killing it, right? Like their territories are enlarging and the kings are reigning for a long time. So in the south, you have Amaziah reigning for about 30 years. And then you have Uzziah reigning for about 52 years. He probably has a a co-regency of over 10 years with his his, uh, father. Um, And then then in the north, you have Jeroboam II, um, under whom um, Jonah prophesied. Um, And he reigns for 40 years, um, 793 through 753 BC. Um, And then uh, the north starts, there starts being a lot of assassinations. So you have a lot of these like really quick dynasties. Because remember, as I mentioned last week, the north switches hands between nine or ten different dynasties where the south stays in the hands of the kings of Judah for its entire existence. Um, but uh, King Zechariah is killed by Shalom. Shalom is killed by Menachem. Menachem's son, Pekahiah, is killed by Pekah. So you just have the, the, the north kind of like, now it has a lot of internal turmoil, But, I mean, in general, it's a very prosperous time for these kingdoms. Um, They're relatively peaceful with one another. Um, They have control of important trade routes. Uh, Their economies are generally fueled by booming agriculture and mining. And there appears to have been a lack of pressure from Damascus. Because remember, Israel's um, Israel's friendly neighbor to the north often was warring with it, right? Often trying to take territory. And um, Damascus tends to, um, tends to recede. And this is most likely due to Adad Narari III's subjugation of Damascus in, at the beginning of the 8th uh, century. Um, so the, and there might be a cryptic allusion to that in 2 Kings 13, where we read that the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel... And he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadab, the son of Hazael. So that's when things are bad with Damascus, right? Then Jehoahaz, which is interesting because this is a northern king. Northern kings are not, don't generally do this. But he sought the favor of Yahweh, and Yahweh listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, Yahweh gave Israel a savior... And they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Now, that's a little bit cryptic, right? Like, what exactly does that mean? Who is this Savior? But 
again, it makes sense that right around there, Damascus is dealing with um, Assyria starting to uh, force it into submission. So it's understandable that those kings are not able to, to campaign in the south very effectively. So if this is where the story ended, you know, Assyria probably would have remained in its spot. But in 745, um, a king named Tukulti Apil Ashara, whose name in the Bible is Tiglath Pileser, and he is Tiglath Pileser III, usurps the throne in a military revolt and kills the entire royal family. Um, although it's possible that he himself was of royal blood. Internally, he restructures the empire. So this guy's like an administrative like genius. He, he restructures it to cripple the power of lower officials. Uh, he redistricts the provinces. There used to be 12. Now there's going to be 25 Assyrian provinces, assigning two officials to each administrative office, one on the left, the other on the right. Um, makes them easier to control than if there's just one person in charge of a particular thing. Many of the appointees are eunuchs now, for obvious reasons. They have no dynastic ambitions. And um, his foreign policy, as opposed to his domestic policy, is aggressively expansionist, swelling the state's borders now beyond Middle Assyrian boundaries. And um, he's the one who develops a standing army, incorporating conquered peoples as infantry while Assyrians um, native Assyrians form the core cavalry and the chariotry. He, um, he makes conquered states into actual provinces. So now not just are you paying tribute, but you are part of Assyria now. Depending on how docile a state is, Assyria um, enacts a three-step program of forced submission. So the first stage is a vassal stage. Okay, so the local rulers, the king that you would have, he maintains control, but he has to pay tribute. Okay, then if that does, goes south and that ruler decides not to pay tribute, he would turn it into a, they would turn it into a puppet state. So that's the second stage, vassal to puppet, where they would remove the ruler and put a hand-picked um, Assyrian loyalist um, on the throne there. And if that still didn't work, then it would enter into the provincial stage where they're ruled directly under, um, a, by a governor under Assyrian control. And you actually see those three stages in what the northern kingdom of Israel goes through. So we can look at Menachem, okay, king of, northern king of Israel, 752 to 742 BC. He is a king during a vassal stage. Uh, he provides tribute as a vassal state and is left in peace. Um, and we see this in the Bible. Pol, the king of Assyria, came up against the land, and Menachem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver. Why is it calling Tiglath Pileser Pol here? Well, um, his, uh, as I said, um, uh, Tiglath Pileser's name in Akkadian is Tukulti Apil. Ishara, which means my trust is in the son of Ishara. So the, 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 the middle name is Aphil. And in the Assyrian language, Akkadian language, the word Pulu, which sounds similar to Aphil, means limestone block. So this may be a little bit of a nickname that was given to him. 
I've heard it said blockhead, something like that. Um, but these guys, because the Bible elsewhere calls him Tiglath Pileser. Um, so that's kind of like the best stab is why this text calls him Pole. Um, if you've got a better idea, let me know. So, um, so he gives Pol a thousand talents of silver that he might help him confirm his hold on royal power. Menachem exacted the money from Israel, that is from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Um, then we have uh, another inscription of tiglath Pileser's called the Iran Stella. You could guess where this comes from. Uh, the kings of the land of Hatti and of Aram and the western seashore, the land of Kedar and the land of Arabia. And then he starts listing them. Um, and here you actually have an Aramean king who's listed in the Bible. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. His name is Rezin, the Damascene. So he's the king of Damascus. And Menachem, the Cimmerian. So he's listed there. Then you got all these other guys listed. And at the end of it, it says, I imposed on them tribute that's down here, of gold, tin, silver, gold, tin, iron, elephant hides, elephant tusks, um, blue, purple, and red, purple garments, multicolored garments, linen garments, camels, and she-camels. Um, but then Menachem dies, and his son Pekahiah is soon assassinated by another Israelite guy named Pekah. So Pekahiah is killed by Pekah. There you go. You can see where he got the idea. Um, and that's in 735. And he is supported by Damascus and the population of Gilead, right? So they don't like the fact that Assyria is dominating. And if only we didn't have such a, such a, a, a weak king, we would be able to throw off their yoke. And so uh, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, 2 Kings 15 tells us, his captain, uh, the, 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 the captain uh, uh, Pekahiah's captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Aria. He put him to death and reigned in his place. And then begins what uh, a phase in the Bible, which we read about in a couple biblical books, um, of what is called the Syro-Ephraimite War. Now remember, in your Old Testament's most English translations translate Aram, so Aramea, as Syria. I'm not sure why they feel so strongly about doing that, but that, I mean, that's what the area is called today. But so this is Aram, the Aram-Ephraimite War. So here's what happens. So Pekah, who remember, is, is, is now still supposedly a vassal to, um, uh, to Assyria, probably, possibly trans. Trans, uh, transitioning into the puppet phase, right? But he's supposed to be an Assyrian loyalist. Uh, he's the king of the northern kingdom. And then that guy Rezin, whom we saw a minute ago, the king of Damascus, they break away from Assyria. And, uh, and, they, and they try to get the king of Judah, whose name is Ahaz, to join them. But he refuses. And so they make a move against Jerusalem. You know, perhaps with the thought to overthrow him and put another in his place. And so we read in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, 
Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack on it. So they're not successful, but this is enough to scare the pants off of Ahaz. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Aram is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim being the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And um, elsewhere in the Bible, particularly in 2 Chronicles 28, this is framed as a judgment against Ahaz and Judah for their idolatry. Because what's he been up to? Well, 2 Chronicles 28 tells us um, that he made metal images, masekot, for the Baals. And also that he made offerings in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, what will later become Gehenna, uh, burning his son as an offering. So this guy is not a faithful worshiper of the Lord. And so this whole ordeal now where he's facing um, Samaria and Damascus is interpreted as judgment of God, of God on him. And, uh, and 2 Chronicles 28 actually does tell us about how bad it got. So Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken Yahweh, the God of their fathers. The men of Israel also took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Um, now, so this is happening. You can imagine how Ahaz must feel about this. Then Isaiah starts coming to him, and he tells him a bunch of stuff. I'll just give you a few kind of excerpts from chapter 7. Uh, Thus says Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 50, 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So in 65 years, these guys are going to be nothing, and it's going to be my doing. Now, kind of an interesting chronological thing. So this Syro-Ephraimite war takes place in about 735 BC, okay? Now, Samaria falls in 722, 13 years later, okay? Um, yet here God says that there will be, uh, they won't, there will be no more, how does he phrase it? It will be shattered from being a people in 65 years. So is there, is there a problem here with the time? Well, actually, although the final destruction of Samaria is indeed in 722, the final deportations don't take place until um, under Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal, the Assyrian kings, in 670. So do the math there. Uh, six thir um, 735 to 670, 65 years. And then he even gives him a sign, something that we might be familiar with. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and your father's house such as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, so this is this threat of what's going to happen um, if he goes through with this problem, his plan. And what is his plan? What are Ahaz's advisors telling him? You know, the, the king of Assyria isn't too happy with, uh, with, with, with Pekka right now. Why don't we become his vassals and he'll do something about him so that he can protect us, right? A simple solution, a very short-sighted solution, right? And Isaiah is urging him against this. And he tells him, there's a, a young woman or a virgin, how you translate that is not part of archaeology of the Old Testament, so I'm going to punt that one for now. Um, <laughs> but here's this young woman, and she's, she's going to have a child. And before that child even knows how to choose between the good and the evil, these lands are going to be conquered. Don't worry about it. All right? Um, and uh, that, of course, is picked up by Matthew, who is addressing a similar time of crisis among God's people, where here you have a young woman, a literal virgin, who has conceived and whose son, as much as this kid, whoever this was, meant God with us, how much more so Jesus, the Son of God, means God with us, Emmanuel. Um, and so Isaiah is essentially predicting disaster if Ahaz turns to Assyria for help. You're not thinking straight. This is a crazy plan. Don't do it. So Isaiah is a very anti-Assyrian prophet. Um, and so in chapter 8, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah, he's talking about the north there, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And so you see how this starts to now become just simply a threat of judgment. This, a, a series of events now is unfolding in the life of King Ahaz, that they will not be able to turn back. And indeed, Ahaz refuses to listen to the prophet and instead takes the counsel of his advisors. And we actually see this in Tiglath-Pileser III's summary inscription number seven, found at his capital, uh, Kala, that describes the tribute he received from Judah's neighbors and from Judah itself. So here you have a bunch of names, and included in the names is Jehoahaz, so Jehoahaz would be his full name, um, of the land of Judah, and then the normal kind of tribute list, gold, silver, tin, iron, lead, multicolored garments, linen garments, the garments of their lands, red, purple, wool, all kinds of costly articles, produce of the sea and dry land, uh, commodities of their lands, royal treasuries, treasures, horses, and mules broken to the yoke. So now, so Assyria does this, and he is also now going to deal with the rebellious northern kingdom of Israel. And he essentially, he does several different things. We'll discuss two of the things. Um, and both of which you see in 2 Kings 15, 29 through 30. 
So in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, right? We don't always call him Pol in the Bible, of Assyria came and captured Ajon, Abel, Beit, Ma'akah, Yanoah, Kedesh, Hatzor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So there's your first response. He takes out a lot of the north and especially a lot of the Transjordan, and he, brings, he carries them captive to Assyria to repopulate. And it's interesting, at about this time, you start seeing Israelite names pop up in Assyrian documents, a lot of names ending with Yahu or Yah. It's actually kind of funny. The guy who taught me all this stuff, one of the guys who does like the standard uh, translations of him, K. Lawson Younger Jr., he was my advisor in grad school. And so he did like the main research in like scanning Assyrian documents for Israelite names at this time, you know, where, where they're deported, because you could see where they're deported to. And he was invited to give this talk at Brigham Young University, which is a Mormon university. And if you know anything about Mormonism, where do they think these Israelites went? They came here and became the Native Americans. <laughs> and so it's interesting <laughs> that now he's talking about, well, here we see where they were repopulated to. And that talk, the video of that talk is up to their credit on, on their, I think it's on their YouTube channel now. Um, and um, I think if you Google, if you YouTube his name, you can watch it, if I remember correctly. But they had it taken down, mysteriously missing from all their lectures. <laughs> um, I'm not sure who got the bright idea to invite him to talk about that. But it's interesting. Um, but um, so, so now they're firmly, the northern kingdom now is firmly within the puppet stage, right? And they've, he, he's attacked all these lands. And then Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place. Notice there that it's a little ambiguous there. Like, does he, who did he make the conspiracy with? Is it the king of Israel? Is it other, uh, is, is it the, rather the king of Assyria? Uh, and, or is it perhaps just other Assyrian loyalists in the land? It's unclear exactly what Hosea does before, you know, to, to get him to the point where he can... Uh, kill Pekka and take the throne, but he basically does Tiglath-Pileser's dirty work for him. And in summary inscription four from Tiglath-Pileser, by the way, a lot of these are, are lost and they just, the reason I don't have pictures for them, um, and so today people just work from written copies or squeezes that are taken from them, like, they, they, like rubbings. Uh, so summary inscription four reads, we, we can actually see that first response in there. Uh, it's broken, but we can make out enough of it. The city of something, the city of Gilead, uh, the city of Abel, uh, which border, uh, which are the border of Bit Humria. Remember, that's one of the that's their the way they refer to the whole land of Israel. They still call it the house of Omri. Um, I annexed to Assyria the entire land, wide land of Bit Chazali, and that's Damascus and the Arameans. And I placed eunuchs out over them as governors. Um, it's, it's tempting to see Abel here as Abel Beit Ma'akah. And some scholars have read it as that. Although the kind of the majority opinion, which I think is probably right, is that, the, that this is actually the broken part here is actually Abel Shatim, which is also in, in, in the Transjordan. Um, 
Okay, uh, and then we see um, another interesting correspondence here in his summary inscription 13. The land of Beit Humria, all of whose cities I leveled to the ground in my former campaigns, I plundered its livestock and I spared only, that means he isolated, Samaria, and I overthrew their king. But notice that there's enough room for that break to mean they overthrew their king. Again, he made a conspiracy and overthrew and killed Pekah. Um, uh, finally, oh, we'll look at summary inscription 9. I conquered the land of Beit Humria in Israel, uh, which is Israel, of course, in its entirety, and I brought to Assyria together with their belongings, and I placed Hosea as king over them. And so here we have a full-on Assyrian puppet now as the last and final ruler of uh, the northern kingdom. All right, let's break there for any questions that you might have. Hi, I've got a question for you. As you were going through with Toglath Pileser, and you talked about the three stages, so there was the vassal stage, and then there was the puppet stage, and then I think maybe that was where you said you weren't going to talk about the third part? Oh, we will talk about the third part. Yeah, we just haven't got there yet. So What's... they're about to enter into the provincial stage. Provincial. Okay, yeah. perfect. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> this is not just a two-course meal here tonight. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully I'll inspire more questions with the second half of my presentation. Yes? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not exactly sure about that, um, but I know that like a lot of this stuff is, so like the history of archeology span is very mixed, right? Like a lot of the earliest finding is ba findings are like Napoleon coming through and um, finding all these immense cities and stuff. And no one really knows what knew what, like what they are. And so, you know, a lot of stuff gets carried off um, and then when stuff starts being excavated by professionals, uh, their standards are not as up to snuff as they are now. In fact, like a lot of, um, there's a fair number of people going back and sifting through like the, the garbage heaps from old excavations because stuff is, so I, I think it's just, it, it maybe have been carelessness, uh, but I'm not sure. You can see this even, another funny example of this, this is unrelated to Assyrian stuff, but when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, right, you watch like documentaries of them filming like they're starting to work on them, right? And a lot of the locals are bringing little fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls to them like in cigarette packs. And then they've got them and <laughs> it shows like the guys who are geniuses, right? They're, they're puzzle piecing the Dead Sea Scrolls together while smoking with scotch tape, you know? <laughs> so the standards are just different, and yeah, so I'm not sure how the pieces got lost, but I mean, some of them are on the floor of the palace, like part of the floor. Some of them are part of walls and stuff, so I'm not quite sure. But that's a good question. It might be worth a Google. Okay, so Tiglath-Pileser dies. He goes the way of all the earth in 727, I think it is. And Hosea, the king of the Samaria, initially pays tribute to his successor, Shalmaneser V, Shulmanu Asharad, uh, but then he withdraws his tribute. I'm not the smartest man. Um, and as 2 Kings 17 tells us, 
Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, who would be Asorkon IV, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Three years. Okay. Um, now, it's a little weird because during that three-year time, Shalmaneser V also dies and is succeeded by a guy named Sargon II. Okay, so Sargon, whose name is Sharukain, which means the king is legit, legitimate, which usually means he's not. <laughs> okay, so, and indeed, Sargon II, who took the name uh, from a great ruler from, from uh, you know, uh, over, like a thousand years earlier, maybe a thousand years earlier, look up the, the numbers there. Um, but he seizes the throne in a military coup. And, um, and so you get in the inscriptions, Sargon II taking credit for, for uh, the whole thing, of course, not surprisingly, right? Um, but um, the scriptures also know that it's not actually Sargon who actually destroys Samaria. It's Shalmaneser V. So a couple passages that are relevant to that. 2 Kings 17.6, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor and the river of Gozon and in the cities of the Medes. So there you have the repopulation. Um, the king who actually conquered, as I said, is Shalmaneser V, and the Bible makes that very clear. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it, and at the end of three years he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And so, like, taken together... It's actually pretty clear that Hosea was actually deported before the siege started to take place. So, as I say, the city is besieged, uh, attacked. Shalmaneser V dies. And uh, after dealing briefly with some domestic crises, Sargon then comes back into the land, deports his, its people, and establishes it as the capital of what was now the Assyrian province of Samarina. So now they're in the provincial stage. They've lost their identity. They're now an Assyrian state. In his inscriptions, Sargon, as I said, takes credit for the entire conquering of Samaria. And this, by the way, is how the people who are known as the Samaritans kind of start to get their start, right? Because you have this depopulation and repopulating as well as other people from throughout conquered peoples being brought in there. So you have like this real mix of people come in. That's not the end of the story with the Samaritans, but that's kind of how it begins. Um, so in Sargon's Nimrud prison, not prison, prism, the inhabitants of Samarina who agreed and plotted with a king hostile to me not to do service and not to bring tribute to Asher and who did battle 
I fought against them with the power of the great gods, my lords. I counted as spoil 27,280 people. Notice how many deportations had already taken place by this time. Together with their chariots and gods in which they trusted. I formed a unit with 2,000 of their chariots for my own royal force. I settled the rest of them in the midst of Assyria. I repopulated Samarina more than before. I brought into it people from countries conquered by my hands. I appointed my eunuch as governor over them, and I counted them as Assyrians. Also, you have the great summary inscription of Sargon II in his palace at Dur Sharukin, which, by the way, like he builds, and then as soon as he builds, he dies. So he actually like probably never even reigned in this um, uh, excavated by the University of Chicago. It's, it's an amazing city, by the way. I besieged and conquered Samarina. I took as booty 27,290 people who lived there. I gathered 50 chariots for them. Notice from them, notice the discrepancy there. I taught the rest of the deportees their skills. I set my eunuch over them, and I imposed upon them the same tribute as the previous king, by whom he means Shalmaneser V. Um, Sargon II's destruction of the northern kingdom, or, you know, which he kind of helped in, <laughs> is also attested in his annals, his small summary inscription, and an inscription on the pavement at the gates of his capital at Dur Sharukin, and a cylinder inscription commemorating the founding of that city. So there's a lot of um, textual evidence of this. Um, so the situation after Samaria's fall is, I think, summarized very well by Mark Vandemeroop in a really good book on the history of the ancient Near East. While the northern parts of the original state, the provinces of Megiddo and Karnaim, were left almost unpopulated, Samaria was developed economically through a creation of small villages and agricultural estates. The administration was restricted to fit Assyria's needs. The capital was rebuilt, and along with a few other cities, it came to be the seat of governors who lived in residences built in the Assyrian style. Fortresses were constructed along the border to protect the province against incursions from the south and east. Legal transactions were now recorded in the Assyrian language and cuneiform script. And then, a couple years later, 705 B.C., um, Sargon, for some weird reason, is with his troops in the field in Anatolia. So Anatolia is the region like even north of Aram, even north of Syria. And he's out with them, possibly because he got just tired of sitting around and wanted to see some action. And his, as far as we understand it, his camp is attacked at night and he is killed and his fleeing troops were not able to recover his body, which is like a super bad omen, okay? And so when his son takes the throne, he is going to have to deal with a lot of trouble because people are like, well, this is a very disgraceful end, and, and it's a very unexpected end, right? He's killed by basically a marauding band. Now's the time to shake off the Assyrian domination, Basically, like tons of people throughout the Assyrian Empire start thinking this. This son's name is Sin Ache Eriba, or as the Bible calls him, Sin uh, Sennacherib. And he will reign from 704 to 681. 
He is, as I said, the son of Sargon II. Uh, following Sargon's death, uh, as I said, there's many attempts to free uh, of different rulers to free themselves from the yoke of, of Assyria. And so Sennacherib starts embarking on campaigns, which he, um, which he documents very well in order to control these regions. The first one in late 703 BC is directed at Babylon to, to deal with a revolt there led by the vehemently anti-Assyrian Marduk Apla Edina II, who you might recall from the book of 2 Kings and Isaiah, uh, the Bible calls Merodach Baladan. Okay? Um, this guy does survive Sennacherib um, attacking Babylon because he flees from it. Um, the second is carried out against the Kassites in the Zagros Mountains to the east. And then the third is his decision to go west in order to subdue the rebelling city-states in the Levant, beginning with the Phoenician coast and then following a southward trajectory where he would finally focus his forces on the capital of the kingdom of Judah, whose ruler, Hezekiah, was a prominent leader of a rebellion against Assyria in the region. Um, and 2 Kings 18.7 tells us of Hezekiah, Yahweh was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now, Hezekiah, you, you might know, is evaluated in the book of 2 Kings as one of the best kings of, um, of Jerusalem. Uh, probably, you know, aside from like David, um, in the line of David, probably second only to Josiah in terms of the religious reforms, the move away from idolatry. Um, we're even told that he, the first Passover since like the time of the judges happened under Hezekiah. And when you read stuff like that, you're like, wait, what? You guys weren't keeping the Passover this whole time? You know? And uh, yeah, so... I think that's in Chronicles, though. That's not in, in, in Kings. I might be wrong about that, but it seems to be right. Um, so one thing that Hezekiah does as part of his revolt against Sennacherib is he imprisons the king of Ekron, this guy named Paddy, P-A-D-Y. Not Paddy as in Peppermint Paddy. Um, and uh, because Paddy is an Assyrian loyalist, but his subjects hate that fact and want to be part of the rebellion, so they deliver him to the most powerful king in the region, the king of Jerusalem, Hezekiah. So he imprisons Paddy, and um, the confidence of Judah and other southern rebels, such as Ammon, Moab, and Edom, is strengthened by promises of military support from the king of Egypt at this time, who is a Cushite named Shebiktu. And um, uh, now, as I said, he comes to power, Sennacherib does, in 704 BC. It's not until 701 that he invades Judah. So there's three years that these guys have to prepare to see what Sennacherib is made of. And so Hezekiah and his allies have ample time now to fortify their cities, to stock up on arms, and to supply themselves with provisions in the event of an attempted siege. Now, here is something interesting. This is what's called a bulla. So, a bulla is a piece of clay that a seal has made an impression on. And here is an authentic seal, there's no doubt as to this one, of Hezekiah. So, 
there's your Lamed belonging to Hezekiah, and then, uh, and then, the, and then the name Ahaz, there's the, the, the Zion, um, probably, you know, son of Ahaz, of course, and then Mame Lamed Kopf, Melech, king of Yehuda. So this is Hezekiah's seal. And notice these, this, these like the, the eagle or the bird or the winged, whatever that is. I forgot to look it up. But um, <laughs> notice that. Uh, re- remember that for like um, a slide or two. In the, or actually for the next slides we're about to look at. So part of the things that we see archaeologically from this point is that in a bunch of militarily strategic sites, you have these jar handles that have been found all with the royal stamp on there. And notice what's on them, that winged creature there. And so you have all these jars, and these are known as the lamellic jar handles, and they're found all over the place. Lamellic, of course, meaning belonging to the king. So here we have Lamed, Mame, um, um, uh, Kopf. Um, so, uh, yeah, Mame, Lamed, Kopf, um, belonging to the king. And then here is a name of apparently a, uh, a city that's a bait, that's a rash, and that's a, a noon, so maybe Baran or something like that. Um, and again, notice the, the symbol from his royal seal that you see on it. Um, Hezekiah is even able to dig a tunnel under Jerusalem to access the Gihon Spring in order to provide water uh, to the city should other resources be made unavailable. So we read about this in several passages. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? 2 Kings 20.20. Or you have 2 Chronicles 32.30. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Isaiah 22.8-11 may also refer to this. Um, this, of course, is like looking backwards on it. But in that day, you looked at the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. So obviously against a, a subsequent king. Um, and uh, now, what's the situa- scenario here? Now, the Gihon Spring, which is the water source of Jerusalem, it's weird because Jerusalem's up on a hill, but the spring is downhill. So if you're gonna f- so Jerusalem's great because it's on a hill and it can be fortified and it's hard to get to, but if an army comes and surrounds it, they have access to the water, right? They have access to your spring. And so as early back as the Canaanites, they built a tower there and uh, put like the wall around the Gihon Spring. So, however, when that spring would overflow, it would water outside the city. And so what's the problem there? So you're bringing water into the city, A, from it. That's a good thing. But you also want to solve the problem of water, giving water to the enemy army. You want to starve, try to starve them out and make them thirsty as much as possible. And so, um, pro, uh, so the idea with what 
Hezekiah is doing here is that he wants to stop that from happening. And uh, this is probably in line with the building project mentioned in 2 Chronicles 32.4. A great many people were gathered and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Okay. So indeed, what he did was he had a tunnel made. And that's only part of it. Okay. This tunnel is 800 I'm sorry, 583 yards long. So almost six football fields dug underground. And that's not dirt. <laughs> okay. Um, and um, and uh, before I tell you the additionally impressive thing about it, let me read an inscription that was found on the wall of this tunnel. And this is my translation of it. This is the Siloam Tunnel Inscription. The day of tunneling. Now, this is the report of the tunneling. This does not seem to be an official royal inscription, by the way. While the cutters were still wielding pickaxe, each towards his companion, and while there were three cubits to, the, to tunnel, a voice was heard of each man calling to his companion, for there was a fissure in the stone from the right and from the south. And on the day of the tunneling, the cutters struck, each man meeting his brother, Pickaxe against pickaxe. What the heck is that talking about? Okay, remember, 583 yards. They are, in order to do it quicker, they started one team from outside, the other from inside, and underground were able to meet in the middle. And there's a 12-inch um, a change in altitude that they also figured out, like that specifically. It's an impressive feat, right? And here is commemorating probably the spot, but definitely the moment when they broke through and found each other, okay? And the waters flowed from the spring to the pool, uh, 1,200 cubits, um, a cubit being the length of forefinger to the elbow. 100 cubits was the height of the rock over the heads of the cutters. So this thing is deep too. So... An impressive, a very impressive feat, I would say. Um, again, the two crews to speed up the, the project are used. Um, and according, and, and additionally, like why they might want to work quickly is because according to the inscription, Sennacherib is by now at this point in the land and he's conquered, he claims to have conquered 46 Judean cities. So he's making his way to Jerusalem and they need to finish this thing quick. Now, the sheer number of attestations of Sennacherib's invasion of Judah in 701 BC has led uh, K. Lawson Younger um, to call it the most well-attested event in all the Hebrew Bible, or in the New Testament too, for that matter. Possibly among the most well-attested events in all of history. So, especially ancient history. So, here is a chronological list of all of the known sources for this. So first of all, Sennacherib's own inscriptions. You have the Rassam cylinder, cylinder C, the Heidel prism, the King prism, the Jerusalem prism, the Taylor prism, the Chicago prism, which we'll look at in a minute. Um, you have three places in the Bible, 2 Kings 18, 13 through 19, 37. 
Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, and 2 Chronicles 32, 1 through 22. You have another inscription by um, Sennacherib called the Azekah inscription. You have these various reliefs from Sennacherib's palace. So here we have, I'll show you several panels of the siege of Lachish, which is one of the cities he went to before. Lachish is one of the major fortified cities of Judah. And here you can see, right, they're, they're, um, uh, the protectors of the city shooting down as the Assyrians are bringing up their, their siege engines against the city, okay, and coming up against it. You see all the, the rocks and stones. And also the excavations at Lachish. Um, there are arrowheads, uh, Assyrian plates from their armor. There are sling stones. There are skeletons of women who are laying prostrate, having been raped by the Assyrian um, uh, uh, soldiers who, who came into the city. It was this horrifying scene, as we can continue to see from the reliefs on his wall. So here are the Assyrian, some Assyrian soldiers marching up against the city. Notice the slings, uh, the sling stones have been found. Um, let's go to the next one. Here we have the inhabitants being impaled, probably alive outside of the city. And then finally, here we have another close-up of the siege engines um, and them trying to make their way into the city, okay? So this is what they're facing here. Um, in addition to all the so other sources I just mentioned, you have the Siloam Tunnel inscription, which we looked at, and those stamped jar handles. So here is the Chicago prism, photo courtesy of Walt Windisch. Thank you, Walt. Beautiful shot. It's a lot better. Like, you can zoom in on that sucker. The resolution is good. Okay. And this is my translation of it, but it is in line. Look, notice how like well-preserved it is, um, but it's in line with all the major translations. I just figure if you've done one, why the heck not? Um, so uh, I'm going to give a couple, just, just a small sampling of it, okay? So let's start with Ashkelon. As for Sidka, king of Ashkelon, who did not submit to my yoke, I deported the gods of the house of his father, himself, his wife, his sons, his daughters, and the seed of the house of his father, and conducted him to the land of Assyria. Sharu Ludari, son of Rukibti, their former king, I placed over the people of Ashkelon, and I imposed on him the giving of tribute, gifts of my lordship, and he pulled my yoke. There is a guy who did not submit. Okay, And who's the ringleader of those who did not submit? Hezekiah. Okay, the governors, the princes, and the people of Ekron who had placed Paddy, their king. Remember, we talked about this guy. This is not peppermint Paddy. Vassal and pledge of the land of Assyria in fetters and iron and had given him as an enemy to Hezekiah the Judean. Because of the offense they had committed, they were afraid. They sought help and the kings of Egypt, right? Remember, we read about, about in, in the Bible how they went to Egypt for help. Uh, archery units, chariots, and horses of the king of Cush, forces without number, remember the, he's a Cushite king, the Egyptian king, came to their aid in the plain of Alteca, the battle line arrayed before me, and they sharpened their weapons. But with the fear of Asher, my lord who was with me, I fought with them, and I shed their blood. In the midst of the battle, my hand captured alive the charioteers and the sons of the king of the Egyptians." 
along with the charioteers which belonged to the king of Cush. I laid siege to Elteca and Timnah. I carried away their spoil. I drew near to Ekron. I executed the governors and the princes who had committed the transgression. And who is their ringleader? Hezekiah. And I hung their corpses on the towers around the city. The citizens who did these things and offenses I counted as spoil. I commanded the release of their remnant, which bore neither guilt nor offense, those who had not transgressed. I brought out Paddy, their king, from the midst of Jerusalem, and I seated him on the throne of lordship over them, and I placed the tribute of my lordship on his back. So think about what we've seen have happened to those who did not submit. Okay? And again, who is their ringleader? Hezekiah, right? And we saw what happened to Lachish, right? As for Hezekiah, the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, I laid siege to and conquered 46 of his strong fortified cities, as well as small towns in their vicinity without number, using causeway ramps and close combat, battering rams, fighting infantrymen, tunnels, breaches, and siege machines. I brought out from their midst 200,150 people, small and great, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep without number, and listed, and listed them as plunder, that should say. As for him, in the midst of Jerusalem, his royal residence, I confined him as a bird in a cage. I erected siege forts over him, and those coming out of the gate of his city I sent back as his misfortune. His cities, which I took as plunder from the midst of his land, I divided and gave to Metinti, king of Ashdod, Padi, king of Ekron, and Silibel, king of Gaza, and I reduced his land. I added and imposed on his back gifts of my lordship on top of the earlier tribute, the annual giving of payment. As for Hezekiah himself, the fear of the radiance of my lordship overwhelmed him. He sent behind me to the midst of Nineveh, the city of my lordship, Orbi soldiers and his best troops, which he had brought in for the reinforcement of Jerusalem, the city of his dominion, when he obtained reinforcements, along with 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, choice coal, large, and no one knows how to translate this, Anza Gulmi stones, uh, couches of inlaid ivory, chairs with backs, ivory, elephant hide, your stock stuff that you get as tribute, right? You get that they get as tribute. Boxwood, every valuable treasurer, along with his daughters, the females of his palace, male musicians and female musicians, forgiving the payment and doing the doing of service, he sent me his mounted messenger. Does anything not line up here? Who was the ringleader? Hezekiah. Okay. So not only does he come to, to Jerusalem, does all this stuff, uh, and has a lot of this stock language that we've seen like a zillion times before, but he just turns away. He goes home. Um, and not to mention that, he never returns. Now, if you go to 2 Kings 19, okay, um, <clears throat> We get a little bit of a different account. So Hezekiah is in the city, and everyone's freaking out. And his Rob Shekah, who's one of his high officials, comes to the city, 
And this is the scene where he's like, he's like, you know, you guys are hopeless. You're going to trust in the, the other gods of the lands. They didn't deliver them. Are they going to, is your God going to deliver you? And they're like, stop talking. Stop talking in the land of, uh, in the language of the land. Talk, talk in Aramean. So, and he's like, no, I'm talking to the language of the land because these are the people who are doomed to eat their own dung and, eat, and drink their own urine. It's in the Bible. I can say it. Um, and, and, uh, and then like he goes and he fights the Egyptian king, right? As he says he, he did here. And then he comes back, right? And Hezekiah is like freaking out. But guess who else is in the city? Isaiah. And Hezekiah goes and he goes into the temple. Um, and he spreads out this letter from the messengers of, the, of Sennacherib and spreads it before the Lord. And says, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone." And then Isaiah comes back and brings him this oracle, and it's a lengthy oracle with this beautiful poetic section. And I want to focus on uh, verses 32 through 34. Uh, this is after the poetic section. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares Yahweh, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then we read, that night the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies, then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. Now, if you read um, secular accounts of this, they'll often explain this by way of a plague, perhaps, that hit the Assyrian army. Um, and as he worship, was worshiping, as Sennacherib was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Shar-Ezer, remember those two names, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. You see, Sennacherib um, had an older son named Arda Mulisu. Arda Mulisu, a dramalek, okay, um, whom was initially set to inherit the throne. But then he appointed another of his sons, Esarhaddon, to be his successor. And so Arda Mulisu... Um, got together with another one of his brothers, Nabu Shar Utzer, Shar Ezer, and killed their father um, in the temple. And they did this on October 20th, uh, 681 BC. Um, 
So, again, one of the more interesting correspondences between the Bible and ancient history. Now, I want to bring your attention, we're going to fast forward the clock a little bit here, because uh, there's a bunch of other stuff, and I wasn't quite sure the best way to end it, but I feel like we've talked a lot about Assyrian stuff, and there's been a lot of killing, and a lot of like armies, and decimation, and things like that, and so kind of to break things up, I want to I want to introduce you, some, uh, you guys to something that maybe a few of you know about, but it's actually not that well known, surprising how interesting it is. So these are the Katef Hinnom silver strips. All right, so again, we're totally shifting gears here, okay? <laughs> uh, uh, so this is an Iron Age, uh, this is, there, there is an Iron Age cemetery on the southwestern bank of the Hinnom Valley. Uh, called Katef Hinnom. And uh, there, are, there were two inscriptions found in room 25 uh, of Burial Cave 24. And the inscriptions themselves are two little rolls of silver with texts written on the inside. So you've got a little strip of silver and you inscribe in these tiny letters that we kind of need microscopes to be able to see clearly, and then you roll them up, and then they sit there for 2,500 years until they're found in an excavation, okay? And the process of unrolling them itself took three years, okay? Um, these date to the late 7th to early 6th centuries BC, so late 600s, uh, early five, um, like high 500s, low 600s, okay? Around the, the end of the southern kingdom. And what we have in here is, in both of them, are abbreviated versions of the priestly blessings, the priestly blessing from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. This makes these, these two little scrolls, teeny tiny little things, so cute. The old, the, what, what J.P. Dessel um, in the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Ancient Near East calls the oldest surviving biblical passage antedating the Dead Sea Scroll copies by some 400 years. Scroll 1, and these, these are, this is my translation, but again, it's in line with the, the majority, uh, how the majority of scholars take it. Yahweh something, the great something who keeps the covenant and something, graciousness, towards those who love him and those who keep his commandments. Hear how biblical that's sounding right now? Um, the eternal something. Blessing more than any snare and more than evil. For redemption is in him. For Yahweh is our restorer and rock. May Yahweh bless you and may he keep you. May Yahweh shine his face upon you. And now recall that also... Remember that weird site last week, Kuntilad Ajrud with Yahweh and his Asherah? That may Yahweh bless you and keep you is in there as well. Now that, I don't mean to rain on the parade of how nice this is by reminding you of that uh, piece of work right there, right? But the, the point being that here is something that Moses gave to Aaron that is retained throughout Israel's history. But here we have a much more complete form of that priestly blessing. And then in the next one, in scroll two, and again, this is 11 millimeters by 39 millimeters long. That's how big these things are. May he or she be blessed by Yahweh, the warrior and the rebuke of evil. 
May Yahweh bless you and may he keep you. May Yahweh make his face shine upon you and may he give you peace. Okay? And so it's probably likely that these are some kind of amulet that would have been worn or carried around in some fashion. Um, and just to remind you, number 6, 24 through 26, may Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh turn his face towards you and give you peace. All right. Um, there's a little bit of an ironic point to this as well. So as is, you know, as we saw Dessler said, and is, is true, this is technically, I don't know if I'd call this a biblical manuscript, but this is the earliest attestation of clearly a biblical text that we have like, you know, physical copy of. And um, the portion of scripture that this is, this dates at least a hundred years prior to when skeptical scholarships, scholarship before this was discovered dated this text. Okay, so it's interesting that the first piece of actual data to disconform or, or confirm these elaborate dating systems for the Old Testament, um, the very first piece of evidence uh, essentially proves wrong everybody who's saying that this priestly blessing is, um, you know, post-exilic or something like that. So I don't want to get, there's, you know, Tons of scholars say tons of different things about the dating of the Old Testament, but it is a little interesting factoid. Um, plus, if you count, you know, the Kuntilat Ajrud as evidence of the stream of this phraseology, um, it's way or we have evidence way earlier than that as well. Okay, well, it is 8.30, folks, so that's it for tonight. Um, uh, let's go ahead and ask questions. And as usual, if you do need to leave right now, that's that's fine. Only thing, I think the doors are automatically locking at 8.30. Not from the inside, don't worry. Um, uh, so if you do go outside, you'll need to knock if you need to come back in. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, so I, I have a few questions. Um, so that spring of water outside of Jerusalem, that was like downhill. How did they get it uphill? Uh, it's so the, recall that this is this is cut like deep underground, and so the idea is you go down to the level of the spring, dig over, and then the, the tunnel. Essentially, you have like a well then that is that is formed by the water that's brought in. Uh, and like if we saw, I'm also like not sure exactly what the various shafts look like. I've never been to Jerusalem, but like if you remember from um, Megiddo, we saw last week with the water system there. Notice like there's stairs going down into it. Also, yeah. it's not yeah. Because I understand that's how David actually conquered Jerusalem in the very beginning. He yeah, went he through gets one up of those one of these. He gets up one of these water shafts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would need to look this up, but I think the shaft that he would have gone through is what today is called Warren's shaft. Although, don't quote me on that, but I, I, think, that's, I think that's right. But yeah, the guys yeah. Get, get in through, through that. Yeah. Hmm. So it kind of went into Jerusalem, but then they still had to... They got to bring it up, yeah. So that was still quite an elevation, I would mm -hmm. imagine. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, next question I have. Do you know uh, how many people were finally deported from the, the northern tribes? From the northern? From yeah. the northern kingdom? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't know a specific number on it. You know, the number, the final number of deportation is 27,000 and change. Uh, but there, it's obviously a lot more than that. I mean, it's basically the entire population is, is deported, pretty much the entire population. But I don't have the figures of the whole population of the northern kingdom off the top of my head. 
a lot. Yeah, right. In the picture before that showed the siege, yeah. you know, on this side, it looked like people were, that's exactly the one. Look at that. It, looked, does, what are the, it looks like people are leaving on the other side. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those, um, I, 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 I'm not an expert on this, uh, this art, this particular piece of art, but I think what you uh, would have here are people who are coming out defecting to the Assyrians. Um, although I'm not sure. That's my best stab at it without like, looking at an analysis of it. I think that's what it would be. Although, like, a lot of these kind of have, like, different points in chronology in the same picture, too. You know, sometimes these things, like, if you're just making one big picture of what happened at this city, you're going to, like, over here, this will happen, and then this is happening, and this is happening, and maybe there's, like, a large amount of, it's not like a photo at, like, one point in time, so it may be that as well. But the, I mean, those are clearly people being deported. In most Assyrian art, people being deported, uh, deported are carrying little bags around their, their, their backs, on their backs. It's more like information for me because I'm taking notes. You read uh, the last Bible versicle. It was Second Kings. I lost that uh, reference. 30, are you 30, talking about the, the Ketephenim silver scrolls? Or? The last, uh, the last, uh, the last in the presentation? You, you read, yes. It was of, like uh, Second Sennacherib. Kings. Something. Oh, that's Second Kings. Uh, which 16 chapter? or 19? Uh, I think it's, uh, um, what did I, I read? Uh, Second uh, Kings 19. 19. Right, okay, yeah. and related to that uh, part of the Bible, the angel of Jehovah mm -hmm. is uh, mentioned there. Yeah. What is this exactly? I, I know uh, this the is angel not of Yahweh. Is, is yeah, not, that's a tricky, not, yeah, that's, is, yeah. Um, he's not. Okay, so the angel of Yahweh appears various times in the Old Testament, uh -huh. and a lot of times it's very mysterious, and it's mysterious, I mean, sometimes it, like this, I think, like in this part, right, it's, it's no problem just thinking of this as a, an angel, a messenger of the Lord, right, a, however you want to envision an angel, but there's other times where, like the angel of, like the burning bush, when that, Exodus 3 starts out, he sees the angel of Yahweh in the bush. And then God is speaking in the first person. My name is Yahweh, and this will be my name throughout all generations. Um, and yeah, so like there's a bunch of passages like this. Another funky one is with uh, Samson's parents, uh, the way in which like, they interpret this as having seen the Lord. Um, so there's a bunch of these, these examples. Um, you know, some people want to say that the angel of the Lord is like a pre-incarnate Christ appearing. I don't really see any textual evidence. I don't see any place that the Bible actually makes that link. And like, unless we think that God can't manifest physically, anyone, people physically, like I'm not even sure what the steps of logic would be there to substantiate that. So I'm not close to that possibility, but I also don't really know what the biblical evidence would be. Especially since when you get later into the New Testament, Christ seems to be differentiated pretty clearly from angels. Like you think of what Hebrews talks about, about Jesus's superiority to the angels. So it would be kind of weird if he is an angel in the Old Testament. Um, also is a problem for Jehovah's Witness theology, right? Who think, they think that, um, that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Um, 
Uh, you also see, have problems with this with interpretation of Revelation if you think of Jesus like as an angel himself. So, uh, not to mention with your doctrine of God. So, I think that my kind of best stab at it is that the individual uh, identified as the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament is a way of God revealing himself as he truly is in the Old Testament, but in an attenuated way, in a held back way. So you can think of it as like, if you see the president of the United States on TV, you're getting a true image of him, but you're not getting like all he is. And I think that that's kind of like what the angel of the Lord is like. It seems to me to be, and it, this may not be every time you encounter angel of God or angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament either, but at least in certain passages where it starts off and you think you're talking about an angel and then by the end of the conversation, you're clearly talking about the Lord. It seems like something a bit more is going on there. And again, as I'd say, I think it's a way in which God manifests himself in a limited way. In a, a, he, it's truly him, but, it is, but it's restrained in some way. That's how I think of the angel of Yahweh. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you for the evening. And uh, I look forward to our exciting conclusion next week.